0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: Say goodbye to performance robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus
2: Think you know Prince Harry's story?
3: Think again, from recent royal infighting, literally with Prince William.
2: He was shouting at me, I was shouting back at him, and he snapped, and he pushed me to the floor.
3: To why his marriage to Meghan Markle has been relentless tabloid fodder.
2: The fact that she was American, an actress, divorced, black, biracial, with a black mother.
3: But all those things within the family also were sources of mistrust, is that accurate?
2: But also the British press and numerous other people was like, He's changed she must be a witch
3: <laughs> tonight Prince Harry on 60 minutes
4: if you've been to the movies in the past 40 years you have heard a Han Zimmer score action drama comedy blockbusters he's done them all
5: I would describe myself as somebody who's deeply in love with music and deeply in love with movies. Very nice.
4: I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker.
5: I'm Anderson
0: Cooper.
1: I'm Sharon Alfonsi.
0: I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes.
6: This episode
1: Prince
3: Harry may have stepped back from his royal duties in 2020, but he and his wife Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, certainly haven't stepped away from the spotlight. Just last month, they appeared in a six-part Netflix documentary about their relationship and their decision to leave their royal lives behind. But now, the 38-year-old Prince Harry is telling his own story in a new memoir coming out Tuesday called Spare, a nod to his backup role in the line of succession. The book is a stunning break with royal protocol. It's a deeply personal account of Prince Harry's decades-long struggle with grief after the death of his mother, Princess Diana, and a revealing look at his fractured relationships with his father, King Charles, his stepmother, the Queen Consort Camilla, and his brother, Prince William, the heir to his spare. You write about a a contentious meeting you had with him in 2021. You said, I looked at Willie, really looked at him, maybe for the first time since we were boys. I took it all in, his familiar scowl, which had always been his default in dealings with me, his alarming baldness more advanced than my own, his famous resemblance to mummy, which was fading with time, with age. It's pretty cutting.
2: I don't see it as cutting at all. Um, You know, my brother and I love each other. I love him deeply. There has been a lot of pain between the two of us, especially the last six years. Um, None of anything that I've written and anything I've included is ever intended to hurt my family. But it does give a full picture of the situation as we were growing up. And also squashes this idea that somehow my wife was the one that destroyed the relationship between these two brothers.
3: I think so many people around the world watched you and your brother grow up and feel like you two were inseparable. And yet in reading the book, you have lived separate lives from the time your mom died. Mm -hmm. Even when you were in the same school, in high school. Sibling rivalry. Your brother told you, pretend we don't know each other.
2: Yeah, and at the time it hurt. I couldn't make sense of it. I was like, what do you mean? We're now at the same school. Like, I haven't seen you for ages. Now we get to hang out together? He's like, no, no, no. When we're at school, we don't know each other. And I took that personally. But yes, you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. Like we had a very similar traumatic experience. And then we we dealt with it two very different ways.
3: William tried to talk to you occasionally about your mom. Mm. But as a child you could not you couldn't respond.
2: For me, it was never a case of I don't want to talk about it with you. I just don't know how to talk about talk it. Right I never ever thought that maybe talking about it with my brother or with anybody else at that point would be therapeutic.
3: In August 1997, Harry and William were vacationing in Scotland with their father. Harry was 12, William 15. They were asleep at Balmoral Castle on August 31st, when Harry was awakened by his father, who told him his mother had been in a car crash in Paris. In the book you write, he says, they tried, darling boy, I'm afraid she didn't make it. Hmm. These phrases remain in my mind like darts in a board. You say, "Did did you cry?"
2: No. I never shed a single tear at that point. I was in shock. You know, you're 12 years old, sort of seven seven thirty in the morning, early. Your father comes in, sits on your bed, puts his hand on your knee, and tells you there's been an accident. Um, I I couldn't believe.
3: And you write in the book that Pa didn't hug me. He wasn't great at showing emotions under normal circumstances, but his hand did fall once more on my knee, and he said, it's going to be okay. But after that, nothing was okay for a long time.
2: No, nothing, nothing was okay.
3: Harry says his memories of the next few days are fragmented, but he does remember this, greeting mourners outside Kensington Palace in London the day before his mother's funeral. When you see those videos now, what do
2: you think? I think it's bizarre because I see William and me smiling. I remember the guilt that I felt. Guilt about? The fact that the people that we were meeting were showing more emotion than we were showing, maybe more emotion than we even
3: felt. They were crying, but you weren't.
2: There was a lot of tears, and I talk about how wet people's hands were, and I couldn't understand it at first.
3: Their hands were wet Their hands were
2: wet from wiping their own tears away. I do remember one of the strangest parts to it was taking flowers from people and then placing those flowers with the rest of them, as if I was some sort of middle person for their grief. And that really stood out for me.
3: The funeral, on a cool September morning, was watched by as many as two and a half billion people around the world. Perhaps the most indelible image, Prince Harry and his brother, walking behind their mother's casket on its way to Westminster Abbey. What do you remember about that walk?
2: How quiet it was. I remember the occasional wail and screaming of someone. I remember the horse hooves on the road, the bridles of the horses, the gun carriage, the wheels, the occasional gravel stone underneath your shoe, but mainly the the silence. After the service,
3: Princess Diana's body was brought for burial to her family's ancestral estate,
2: Althorpe. Once my mother's coffin actually went into the ground, that was the first time that I actually cried. Yeah, there was never another time.
3: All through your teenagers, you, d- you didn't cry about it? No. You, you didn't believe she was dead? For, yeah. a long, for a long
2: time. I just refused to accept that she was, she was gone. Um, part of, you know, she would never do this to us, but also part of maybe this is all part of a plan.
3: I mean, you you really believed that maybe she had just decided to disappear for a time.
2: For a time, and then that she would call us and we would go and join her.
3: How long did you believe that?
2: Years, many, many years. And William and I talked about it as well. He had had similar thoughts.
3: You write in the book, you say, I'd often say it to myself first thing in the morning, maybe this is the day. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is the day that she's gonna Mm -hmm. reappear.
2: Yeah, hope. I had huge amounts of hope. He
3: held on to that hope into adulthood. When Harry was 20, he asked to see the police report about the crash that killed his mother, her boyfriend Dodi Al-Fayed, and their driver Henri Paul, while they were being pursued by paparazzi in a Paris tunnel. The files contained photographs of the crash scene. Why did you want to see it?
2: Mainly proof. Proof that she was in the car. Proof that she was injured. And proof that the very paparazzi that chased her into the tunnel were the ones that were taking photographs, photographs of her lying half dead on the back seat of the car.
3: You right, I hadn't been aware before this moment, talking about looking at the pictures of the crash scene, yeah. that the last thing Mummy saw on this earth was a flashbulb. Yeah. That's what you saw in the pictures?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, they were, the pictures showed the reflection of a group of photographers taking photographs through the window, and the reflection of the window was, was them
3: he only saw some of the crash photos. His private secretary and advisor dissuaded him from looking at the rest.
2: All I saw was the back of my mum's head uh, slumped on the back seat. There were other more gruesome photographs, but I will be eternally grateful to him for denying me the ability to inflict pain on myself by saying that, because that's the kind of stuff that sticks in your mind forever.
3: Harry says he believed his mother might still be alive until he was 23 and visited Paris for the first time. You told your driver, I want to go to the tunnel Mm -hmm. where my mom died.
2: I wanted to see whether it was possible, driving at the speed that Henry Paul was driving, that you could lose control of a car and plow into a pillar, killing almost everybody in that car. I need to take this journey. I need to ride the same route the same tunnel,
3: the same speed. All of it. Your mother was going? Yep.
2: Because William and I had already been told the event was like a bicycle chain. If you remove one of those chains, the end result would not have happened. And the paparazzi chasing was part of that. But yet, everybody got away with it.
3: Harry writes he and his brother weren't satisfied with the results of a 2006 investigation by London's Metropolitan Police, concluding Diana's driver, Henri Paul, had been drinking. And the crash was a, quote,
2: tragic accident. William and I considered reopening the inquest because there were so many gaps and so many holes in it, um, which just didn't add up and didn't make sense. Would you still like to do that? I don't even know if it's an option now, but no, I think, would I like to do that now? It's a hell of a question, Anderson. Um,
3: do you feel you have the answers that you need to have about what happened to you
2: Truth be known, no, I don't think I do and I don't think my brother does either. I don't think the world does. Um, Do I need any more than I already know? No, I don't think it would change much.
3: Harry now says it wasn't until he served in combat with the British Army in Afghanistan that he finally found purpose and a sense of normalcy.
2: My military career saved me in many regard. How so? Got me out of the spotlight. From the, from the UK press. Um, I was able to focus on a purpose larger than myself, to be wearing the same uniform as everybody else, to feel normal for the first time in my life, and accomplish some of the biggest challenges that I ever had. You know, I was trying to become an Apache helicopter pilot. Um, you don't get a pass for being a prince.
3: The Apache doesn't give a crap about who you are.
2: No, there's, there's no prince autopilot button that you can <laughs> press and just <laughs> takes you away. Um, I was a really good candidate for the military. I was a young man in my 20s, um suffering from shock but i was now in the front seat of an apache shooting it flying it monitoring four radios simultaneously and being there to save and help anybody that was on the on the ground with a radio screaming we need support we need air support Um, that was my calling i felt healing from that weirdly
3: and and that multitasking the brain work of that that felt Good to you.
2: It felt like I was turning pain into a purpose. I didn't have the awareness at the time that I was living my life in adrenaline. And that was the case from age 12, from the moment that I was told that my mom had died.
3: You say war didn't begin in Afghanistan. It began in August, 1997.
2: Yeah. The war for me unknowingly was when my mom died. Who were you fighting? Myself. I had a huge amount of frustration and blame towards the British press for their part in it.
3: Even at, tw- I mean, at 12, I mean, at that young, you were feeling that toward the British press?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was obvious to us as kids, the British press's part in our mother's misery. And I had a lot of anger inside of me that luckily I never expressed to anybody, but I resorted to drinking heavily because I wanted to numb the feeling or I wanted to distract myself from how, whatever I was thinking and I would result to drugs as well.
3: Harry admits he smoked pot and used cocaine and writes that in his late 20s, he felt hopeless and
2: lost. There was this weight on my chest that I felt for so many years and I was never able to cry. So I was constantly trying to find a way to cry, but even sitting on my sofa and going over as many memories as I could muster up about my mum. Um, And sometimes I watch videos online. Of your mum, Of my mum, Hoping to cry? Yep. And you couldn't? I couldn't.
3: He sought out help from a therapist for the first time seven years ago and reveals he's also tried more experimental treatments. You write in the book about psychedelics, ayahuasca, psilocybin, mushrooms.
2: I would never recommend people to do this uh, recreationally, but doing it with the right people, if you are suffering from a huge amount of loss, grief, or trauma, then these things have a way of working as a medicine.
3: They showed you something, what did they show you?
2: For me, they cleared the, wind, the windscreen, the windshield, the misery of loss. They cleared away this idea that I had in my head that, that my mother, that I needed to cry to prove to my mother that I missed her. When in fact, what she wanted was for me to be happy.
3: Prince Harry says he's found that happiness with his wife in California, but as you'll hear in a moment, he's far from at peace with the royal family.
7: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset
5: is gorgeous.
4: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
5: Oh, burger time.
4: So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under
8: $20,000 just waiting for you.
5: I could stay here forever.
8: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
3: Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, is anything but spare in its unflattering portrayal of the royal family, especially his stepmother Camilla, now the queen consort. She married, then, Prince Charles in 2005, though the two had been romantically involved on and off for decades. When Princess Diana famously referred to Camilla as the third person in her marriage, the British tabloids ran with it, and Prince Harry has never forgotten.
2: She was the villain. She was the third person in the marriage. She needed to rehabilitate her image.
3: You and your brother both directly asked your dad not to marry Camilla? Yes. Why?
2: We didn't think it was necessary. We thought that it was gonna cause more harm than good, and that if he was now with his person, that surely that's enough. Why go that far when you don't necessarily need to? We wanted him to be happy, and we saw how happy he was with her. So at the time, it was okay.
3: You wrote that she started a campaign in the British press to pave the way for a marriage. And you wrote, I even wanted Camilla to be happy. Maybe she'd be less dangerous if she was happy.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: How was she dangerous?
2: Because of the need for her to rehabilitate her image.
3: That made her dangerous?
2: That made her dangerous because of the connections that she was forging within the British press. And there was open willingness on both sides to trade of information. And with a family built on hierarchy, and with her on the way to being queen consort, there was gonna be people or bodies left in the street because of that.
3: Harry says over the years, he was one of those bodies. He accuses Camilla and even his father at times of using him or William to get better tabloid coverage for themselves. Prince Harry writes Camilla, quote, sacrificed me on her personal PR altar.
2: If you are led to believe as a member of the family that being on the front page, having positive headlines, positive stories written about you is going to improve your reputation, or increase the chances of you being accepted as monarch by the British public, then that's what you're going to do. In his
3: book, Harry writes that when he introduced Meghan Markle to his family in 2016, his father initially took a liking to her. But William was skeptical, disdainfully referring to Meghan as an American actress. Though Harry doesn't specify who, he says other members of the royal family were uneasy as well.
2: Right from the beginning, before they even had a chance to get to know her, and the UK Press jumped on that, and here we are.
3: And what was that based on, that mistrust?
2: The fact that she was American, an actress, divorced, black, biracial, with a black mother. Those were just four of the typical stereotypes that becomes a feeding frenzy for the British press.
3: But all those things within the family also were, were sources of mistrust.
2: Yes, you know, my family read the tabloids, you know, it's, it's laid out uh, at breakfast when everyone comes together. So whether you walk around saying you believe it or not, it's still, it's still leaving an imprint in your mind. So if you have that judgment based on a stereotype right at the beginning, it's very, very hard to get over that. And a large part of it for the family, but also the British press and numerous other people is like, he's changed, she must be a witch. He's changed, um, as opposed to, yeah, I did change, and I'm really glad I changed, because rather than getting drunk, falling out of clubs, taking drugs, I had now found the love of my life, and I now have the opportunity to start a family with her.
3: Soon after their relationship became public, Harry insisted on putting out a statement, condemning some of the tabloid coverage of Meghan and what he called, quote, the racial undertones of comment pieces. You write that your dad and your brother, William, were furious with you mm-hmm. for doing that, why?
2: They felt as though it made them look bad. They felt as though they didn't have a chance or weren't able to do that for their partners. What Meghan had to go through was similar in some part to what Kate and what Camilla went through, very different circumstances. But then you add in the race element, which was what the press, British press jumped on straight away. I went into this incredibly naive, I had no idea the British press was so bigoted. Hell, I was probably bigoted you, before the relationship with, with Meghan.
3: You would think you were bigoted before the relationship
2: with Meghan? I, I don't know. Put it this way, I didn't see what I now see.
3: They were married in May 2018 in a ceremony that seemed to promise a more modern and inclusive royal family and given the titles Duke and Duchess of Sussex. But behind the scenes, according to Harry... William's mistrust of Megan only worsened. Did you ever try to meet with William and Kate to try to diffuse the tension? Yep. How did that meeting go?
2: Um, not particularly well.
3: In early 2019, Harry writes the rancor between William and him exploded at Harry's cottage on the grounds of Kensington Palace. Your arguments with your brother became physical.
2: Um, It was a build-up of uh, frustration, I think, on his part. Um, It was at a time where he was being told certain things by people within his office. And at the same time, he was consuming a lot of the tabloid press, a lot of the stories. And he had a few issues which were based not on reality. And I was defending my wife, and he was coming for my wife. She wasn't there at the time, but through the things that he was saying. I was defending myself, and we moved from one room into the kitchen, and his frustrations were growing and growing and growing. He was shouting at me, I was shouting back at him. It wasn't nice, it wasn't pleasant at all. And he snapped, and he pushed me to the floor.
3: He knocked you over?
2: He knocked me over. Um, I landed on the dog bowl. You cut your back? Yeah, I cut my back. I didn't know about it at the time. But um, yeah, he, he apologized afterwards, it was a pretty nasty experience, but...
3: He asked you not to tell anybody, not to tell Megan?
2: Yeah, and, and I wouldn't have done. I didn't until she, until she saw on, the, on my back. She goes, what's that? I was like, uh, what? I actually didn't know what she was talking about. And I looked in the mirror. I was like, F***. Well, because I'd never... I hadn't seen it.
3: Megan has said constant criticism and pressure led her in the winter of 2019 to contemplate suicide.
2: The thing that's terrified me the most is history repeating itself.
3: You really feared... That your wife Megan.
2: Yes, I feared. I feared a lot that the end result, the fact that I lost my mum when I was 12 years old, could easily happen against my wife.
3: In January 2020, Prince Harry and Meghan announced they intended to, in their words, step back as senior members of the royal family. They moved to California three months later. Then there was the headline-grabbing interview with Oprah Winfrey and a deal with Netflix worth a reported $100 million. Critics say the Duke and Duchess are cashing in on their royal titles while they still can. Why not renounce your titles as Duke and Duchess?
2: And what difference would that make?
3: One of the criticisms that you've received is that, okay, fine, you want to move to California, you want to step back from the institutional role. Why be so public? Why reveal conversations you've had with your father or with your brother, you say you tried to do this privately.
2: And every single time I've tried to do it privately, there have been briefings and leakings and planting of stories against me and my wife. You know, the family motto is never complain, never explain, but it's just a motto and it doesn't really hold. There's a lot of
3: complaining and a lot of explaining and being done in through leaks,
2: through leaks. Prince Harry
3: continues to claim he would never leak against his family.
2: So, Now, trying to speak a language that perhaps they understand, I will sit here and speak truth to you with the words that come out of my mouth, rather than using someone else, an unnamed source, to feed in lies or a narrative to a tabloid media that literally radicalizes its readers to then potentially cause harm to my family, my wife, My kids.
3: Last month, the British tabloid The Sun published a vicious column about Meghan written by a TV host. He said, I hate her. At night, I'm unable to sleep as I lie there grinding my teeth and dreaming of the day where she is made to walk naked through the streets of every town in Britain while the crowds chant shame and throw lumps of excrement at her. Did that surprise you?
2: Did it surprise me? No. Is it shocking? Yes. I mean, thank you for proving our point. (laughs)
3: Has there been any response from the palace?
2: No, and that comes a point when silence is betrayal.
3: Harry has been back in the United Kingdom. He was in London last September for a charity event when the palace announced his grandmother, the queen, was under medical supervision at Balmoral Castle in Scotland.
2: I asked my brother, I said, what are your plans? How are you and Kate getting up there? Um, And then a couple of hours later, you know, all of the family members that live within the Windsor and Ascot area were jumping on a plane together. A plane with 12, 14, maybe 16 seats. You were not invited on that plane? I was not invited.
3: By the time Harry got to Balmoral on his own, the Queen was dead.
2: I walked into the hall and my aunt was there to greet me. And she asked me if I wanted to see her. I thought about it for about five seconds, thinking, is this a good idea? And I was like, you know what? You can, you can do this. You need to, you need to say goodbye. Um, so I went upstairs took my jacket off, and walked in and just spent some time with her alone. Where was she? She was in her bedroom. I was, actually, I was really happy for her because she'd finished life, she'd completed life, and her husband was, was waiting for her, and the two of them were buried together.
3: As they had 25 years earlier, Harry and William found themselves walking together, but apart, this time behind their grandmother's casket. Do you speak to William now? Do you text:
2: uh, currently no but I look forward to I look forward to us being able to find peace. How I long won- has it been
3: since you spoke
2: um, a while.
3: Do you speak to your dad?
2: we, aren't, we haven't spoken for quite a while um, no not recently.
3: Can you see a day when you would return as a full-time member of the royal family?
2: I can't see that happening.
3: In the book, you call this a, a full-scale rupture. Can it be healed?
2: Yes, the board is very much in their core. But you know, Megan and I have continued to say that we will openly apologize for anything that we did wrong. But every time we ask that question, no one's telling us the specifics or anything. There needs to be a constructive conversation, one that can happen in private that doesn't get late.
3: I assume they would say, well, how can we trust you? How do we know that you're not going to reveal whatever conversations we have in an interview somewhere?
2: This all started with them briefing daily against my wife with lies to the point of where my wife and I had to run away from, our co- from my country.
3: It's hard, I think, for anybody to imagine a family dynamic that is so Game of Thrones without... Dragons?
2: I don't watch Game of Thrones, but there's there's definitely dragons. And that's, again, the third party, which is the British press. So ultimately, without the British press as part of this, we would probably still be a fairly dysfunctional family, like a lot are. (laughs) But at the heart of it, there is a family, without question. Um, And I really look forward to having that family element back. I look forward to having a relationship with my brother. I look forward to having a relationship with my father and other members of my family. You want that? That's all I've ever asked for.
3: We reached out to Buckingham Palace for comment. Its representatives demanded that before considering responding, 60 Minutes provide them with our report prior to airing it tonight, which is something we never do.
4: Music in the background of a movie is often crucial to how we experience the film. In some cases, it can become as memorable as the movie itself. Think of the screaming violins in Psycho or the haunting tuba in Jaws, the latter written by John Williams, who for more than a generation was Hollywood's leading composer. But over the years, as directors and studios began to look for edgier scores, they have increasingly turned to a German-born composer named Hans Zimmer, If you've been to the movies in the past 40 years, you've heard a Hans Zimmer score. Action, drama, comedy, romance, blockbusters, he's done them all. Including the 1994 film, The Lion King, which he won an Oscar for with its opening Zulu chant. sung by Lebo M., a South African musician, who was working at a car wash in Los
5: Angeles when Hans enlisted him. That's how that opening chant came about, literally. Microphone in the room, not in a booth or anything like this.
4: Hans told the executives at Disney that he wanted to say right off the bat... This is not a typical Disney movie. It's a father-son story that takes place in Africa.
5: And they said, exactly, that's good. Do, do Do what you do.
4: He showed us what he does at his studio in Los Angeles, where he composes his scores on this keyboard and computer. For example, the music for the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie.
5: So if you have Pirates, which is basically this sort of a thing... Uh, there's a jauntiness, right? Yeah. I mean... Yeah. The music is really big, and he's in a little rowboat with a little sail, and you hear this huge orchestra. Because that's the music he hears in, the, in his head, because he's the greatest pirate that has ever lived in his imagination. So when you listen to the Joker... He's quite the opposite. It's like, you know, a bow on a bow and arrow, and you stretch it.
4: Oh my God. And
5: it's it's not pretty.
8: Why so serious?
4: It's very emotional inducing. I can't even express why. I wouldn't be able to put words to it.
5: That's the idea. At my best, words will fail you, because I'm using my own language.
4: Since the 1980s, Hans Zimmer's language in his scores, like last year's biggest hit, Top Gun Maverick, has defined not just the characters, but has helped tell the stories of chest-thumping action films and sci-fi epics. Like Dune, which he won an Oscar for in 2022, in which he used juddering drums and electronic synthesizers. So you've been called a maverick. You've been called a visionary. How would you describe yourself?
5: I would describe myself as somebody who's deeply in love with music and deeply in love with movies and playful. I love to play, like as any musician does, as in any language it says, you know, you play music.
4: His choices have been unpredictable. For every man of steel, there's a kung fu panda and a Sherlock Holmes, in which he used a broken piano and banjos for the 19th century detective turned quirky action hero. How important is the instrument to getting what you want?
5: Vastly important, I mean, because instruments come with baggage. You know, for instance, the definition of a gentleman, somebody who knows how to play the banjo but refrains from doing it. Whoa! (laughs) Why that banjo worked, right? Because it was funny.
4: He has used banjos, bagpipes, buzzing electronics, and this, a good old-fashioned orchestra. Think about the composer of The Dark Knight, writing something this delicate.
5: Really good. Can we just have one more just, you know, to protect the innocent?
4: He invited us to watch him record the score of a new movie in a London studio last summer. It's about a young girl coming of age based on a Judy Blume book, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, that will be released in theaters this spring. Like the sound? Mm Mm-hmm. Academy Award-winning director Jim Brooks is a producer of this movie. This is the eighth film they've worked on together.
5: Very nice.
4: What's unique about Hans, says Brooks and other directors, is how deeply involved he gets in more than just writing the music. His process typically begins with a conversation with the director long before a single frame of the movie is shot.
7: You talk about what the movie's about, the story of it, what this
3: scene's about. You, you don't a, turn to a composer for that. Uh,
4: so he becomes almost a partner in the Absolutely, writing yeah. and the directing. Yeah, every, yeah, Every yeah, phase. Yeah. On Gladiator, he partnered with director Ridley Scott. He says he told him that he thought this movie should be about more than just a man in a skirt going into battle.
5: And I felt... Right at the beginning, we needed to set up the possibility that in this movie, we could have poetry.
4: Can we listen just to a bit of the music that you wrote for the...
5: It starts off just with this note.
4: And you see the hand.
5: And you see the hand. And you're already in a different world.
4: And there's no... No one's talking. You left the 20th
5: century. You, You don't expect the tenderness.
4: I mean, you are setting a mood.
5: It's a cry. It's a cry.
4: His love of music, his obsession, grew out of his childhood in West Germany. While other kids liked to play games, he liked to play the piano. So did you take piano lessons?
5: Absolutely. It was two weeks of absolute torture. Two weeks? Well, yeah, because he then went to my mother and said, it's either him or me. And luckily, my mother made the right choice. She kept me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. um, no, 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 no. I drove him crazy. You know, I'm six years old, so my idea was a piano teacher is somebody who teaches you how to... the stuff that's going on in your head, how to get that into your fingers. Oh. That's not what they do. They make you do scales, they make you play other people's music. I not want to do other people's music. Right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. But I promise you, I know my Beethoven and my Brahms inside out.
4: He learned about them from his mother, a classically trained pianist.
5: And there is the other side, which was my dad, who was an extraordinarily appalling jazz clarinetist, but with great enthusiasm. In the middle of his work day, he'd get out the clarinet, I'd be banging around on, and, and we'd be jamming, you know? So that's where I got the joy.
4: Instead of college, he became a rock and roller, performing with the Buggles. Video the radio star. He's that young guy in the black jacket on the synthesizer. They made pop history in 1981 with the first music video to air on MTV. He began composing scores for low-budget films, one of which in 1988 caught the attention of the Hollywood director, Barry Levinson. So this is where it all began. Who showed up one night out of the blue at what was then Hans's London studio.
5: So he said, would would I mind coming to Los Angeles and maybe doing his movie? So off I went to Los Angeles, and I got nominated for an Oscar.
4: First movie, really. First movie.
5: I didn't win, but it didn't matter, because everybody wanted to meet me.
4: That film was no less than Rain Man, which led to Driving Miss Daisy, Thelma and Louise, Black Rain, and more than 140 other films that began to push the sound of movie music into a new direction.
5: I love the idea that electronics let you shape sounds in a way that go beyond the way an an orchestra can.
4: He became a pioneer in fusing electronics with orchestral music, using his secret weapon, a digital library that he built himself with original computer code. He painstakingly recorded each instrument in a real orchestra, note by note, using world-class musicians and the finest instruments, and loading it all into his computer. Take a violin and you have the violin play middle C, and then you have that instrument play play middle C, loud, soft, uh, and all different. Oh, yeah.
5: Look, look. It can play a pizzicato, it can play sorts, you know.
4: So you're not making it pizzicato. They played it that way. They played it that way. You're bringing that up. Whoa, how? That must have taken months.
5: No, it's years? actually it's actually taken years
4: and millions of dollars. He doesn't write out his compositions on paper. His computer does it for him, and it helps create the unconventional sound which can go on. Do you find in his scores scraping metal? Yeah, and uh, electronic thuds music.
5: It can be. Everything can be made to be a musical instrument in one way or the other.
4: He often collaborates with Pedro Eustache, a world-class flautist, who has built contraptions that produce unusual sounds that Hans thinks up for his movies.
3: This is an ostrich egg, okay?
4: That's an ostrich egg. You put the holes in. Yeah, and I put all that there, and it's a
5: musical instrument. So
4: you made? Yeah. An ocarina out of an ostrich. Let me
5: explain. Yeah. Yes, when, please. When he's not stealing eggs at the zoo, <laughs> <laughs> he is a very good customer of Home Depot, and, 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 and so many of his instruments made out of PVC piping.
4: Pedro actually used PVC piping to come up with this twenty-one-foot-long horn that Hans wanted for Dune. He's currently working on Dune Part 2. Guten Abend, Hamburg! And now he goes on tour with a 38-piece orchestra and band to perform his movie scores. How have you changed? You've been working at this for 40 years.
5: I tell you what, so when you start out, you have all that stuff that you've never done before. Every movie had every idea, every device, every chord change, every whatever in it. Now I think it's it's more a figuring it out what to do new, but it becomes harder and harder because I've used up so much ammunition in the past.
4: He told us that after more than 150 films, he lives in constant fear of the day his phone will stop ringing. Even after 150? Do you think you're motivated by
5: that fear? But it's only 150. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, what if 151 is a complete disaster? Oh, wow. You know, I'm still alive. You know, I'm 65 years old now, and people are going, are you going to retire? Are you Are going to go and put your feet up? And I'm going, no, I'm full of ideas. I'm just getting started. Do you
4: really think that?
5: I really think that. Okay, picture this.
7: It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
4: The historic chaos in the House of Representatives this past week embarrassed not only a party, but an entire nation. A small minority blocked the House from electing a leader or even swearing in its own members. Vote after vote, a would-be speaker could not bring himself to stand aside in favor of a colleague. Yes, it was only for a few days in January, But if members of the incoming majority party can't bring themselves to support a new leader, then one wonders what happens when Congress faces tough decisions on budgets, taxes, defense, or raising the debt ceiling. Actually, governing. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.
0: If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with
8: code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it?